the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. So this is the series, just to remind you, we've looked through um, godly character, good work, grace and love. We've been looking at moulding culture, and tonight this is the mouthpiece for truth and justice. Now, Jan's story is a wonderful reminder, I think, that faithfulness is a question of action. And what stood out in Jan's story for me was a specific mode of action that I would call solidarity. And solidarity is about standing side by side with people where they are. And I think we'd all agree that Jan lives a truthful life the way she's lived it. And a truthful life doesn't mean that we go around making accurate statements about um, what exists, like philosophers do. Um, It means our life is orientated towards truth. I think that's what's important in word and also in deed. And I think that, I know I would, I'd love to work with Jan if I was an anaesthetist in a hospital. I think she'd be a fantastic colleague to work with. And I think we'd all like to work alongside truth-filled people like Jan. And I think this is where the power of the gospel is made clear to people. When people understand that the gospel means you are for them, they begin to realise that the love of God is for them. And when they understand that the love of God is for them, they're very close to accepting the rule of God in their lives in repentance and faith. So, there's Jan. One thing I want to say is that Christian solidarity is definitely not about paternalism. Paternalism is when privileged people help in such a way that it maintains their own power, privilege and control over the people they're helping Christian solidarity, or we might call it the true socialism of the kingdom of God, is about Christians standing alongside the oppressed. Not only must we speak about truth and justice, we must embody truth and justice in our actions and in the way we express our corporate Christian life together. A follower of Jesus cannot live a life of truth and justice if they ignore the needs of the oppressed. And um, I've recently come across this theologian called Helmut Golwitzer. And anyone heard of him? No, I'd not heard of him. Um, I always find it amazing. You can always find someone you've not read before um, if you look around. Um, Lovely picture of him here on the screen. And he said, Christian mission clearly implies living with those to whom one is sent living their life with them, speaking their language, sharing in their problems, speaking to them not from the outside, but as one of their own people. So that's where the church must be, alongside people, um, speaking their language, sharing their problems, speaking on the inside within those communities. Now, the true socialism of the kingdom of God and I'm going to keep using this phrase, the true socialism, so not the socialism of political parties or of communism, the true socialism of the kingdom of God. 
where things are made common between us, that can only come about if we understand the truth about ourselves. And I'll let you ponder what that might be. What is the truth about ourselves that we need to know? Well, this question leads us to our passage for this evening. And if you want to look up 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to put them on the screen so you can read along. Um, And you'll probably know the context to this story if you've been a Christian for for a while. I think many of you have. But I'll just recap it if there are people listening online. Um, It's the springtime and uh, it's a time when the kings of the nations go off to war. I guess the rain has stopped and the roads have dried up and they can go and fight. So, um, And David, the king of Israel, has chosen to stay home. He's not gone to fight. And he sends off his army to fight the Ammonites at Rabbah without him, which is actually the wrong thing to do. He should be there fighting with them, showing solidarity with uh, the people risking their lives. So while David's taking it easy on the top of his palace, he spies a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he finds out that it is Bathsheba, who is married to Uriah the Hittite. So he finds out this. And despite knowing that she's married, he he summons her over and commits adultery with her, and she falls pregnant. Concerned he's going to be found out, David... um, summons Uriah the Hittite back from the front line and he um, hopes that Uriah will go and visit his wife and uh, make love to her and conceal the pregnancy, you know, his role in the pregnancy. But Uriah is a man of integrity. He refuses to visit his wife while visiting David because his brothers are fighting for their lives on the front line and he just believes it's wrong to, to do that. So David's cover-up plan has failed and he sends Uriah out to the battlefront, right into the front line, where he knows he will be killed. And that's what happens. And the conclusion of the story is that Uriah, who, um, by the way, we must remember, he's not a member of the covenant community of Israel. He's a Hittite. Uriah is proven to have more integrity than the leader of God's people. David is revealed as an unrepentant adulterer and murderer. So let's read what happens next in 2 Samuel 12, 1-13. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, 
You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So culturally very different, multiple wives uh, to our own age. But the themes we explore this evening are truth and justice. They're inseparable in the Bible. And I think they're inseparable in the Bible because they are inseparable in God. And... I think because of this, if we're following God, they should be inseparable in our lives and also in the life of the church. So let's have a look at them in turn. First, let's have a look at justice. The Bible teaches us that God is justice. It's part of his very being. Justice is the heart of who God is and the substance of what he does. There we go. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 to 4, says this, Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. And then in Psalm 145, we have uh, this in verse 17. The Lord is just... And here it's a different Hebrew word from the one in Deuteronomy, which is Mishpat. Here we have Sadiq. The Lord is just in all his ways and faithful in all he does. Now, the conclusion we can draw from Scripture is that God is the source of all justice and the measure of our understanding of justice. The psalmist tells us that God is just in all he does. Well, what does God do? To know that, we have to look at the history of Israel and God's actions. And so we we just review very quickly. God calls and rescues a people from slavery, providing them with laws that maintain peace and security. He fights their battles so they don't have to amass an army and weapons of mass destruction with all the cost and waste that would involve. He feeds the people in the wilderness to teach them that equality and equity are at the heart of economic life. So that's the story of the manna in Exodus 16. You may know it. And he teaches them how to care for the environment um, by showing them a way of farming, a form of agriculture that's regenerative, not destructive. 
And you can read about that in Leviticus 25 and the Jubilee laws that are there to provide Sabbath for the land. Um, And God also provides the people with a way of containing the effect of sin within their common life together through rituals, through culture and through forgiveness. And in the centre of all of this, in God's salvation plan, of course, God sends Jesus in solidarity with oppressed humanity. And we're here this evening because of Jesus' victory over death on a cross that sets us free to enter the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the kingdom of God is found, I think, where God's justice reigns and his rule is obeyed. And we have this amazing picture of justice in the character of God, and and we see that most clearly in Jesus in the Bible. So that's justice. We have so many stories that define what it looks like, that gives us a sense of what it would look like in our lives. So let's have a look at truth. And here you might need to put your seatbelts on, because I've got some philosophers coming up. We'll see how this goes. Um, What can we say about truth? Well, first of all, let's begin with a definition of truth. Um, The most common understanding of truth is what philosophers talk about as correspondence theories of truth. What we say must correspond to what is. And um, Aristotle put it this way. To say of what is, that it is, or of what is not, that it is not, is true. And I think we'd all kind of get the sense of that. That's a kind of common knowledge, understanding of truth that we all accept. So if we have been to a party, then to say we have been to a party is true. However, it's never that straightforward um, because the philosophers will tell us that we need to define what we mean by a party and then they will question if our language can ever accurately communicate what exists with precision. So, here are four people who have spent their entire lives arguing that we can make statements with precision that accurately describe what exists. Now, if you've heard of um, probably any of these, you're in a a special club. (laughs) You're very special. Um, I've... I've only heard of one of them before. Um, Kurt Gardell uh, was a a Christian. Um, By the way, they're all mathematicians, logicians, and analytical philosophers. So they spend their time um, thinking about what is truth. Kurt Gardell, the Christian. Alfred Tarski was an atheist. Saul Kripke is Jewish. And Alvin Plantinga, maybe a name you've heard of, is a Christian. Now, despite all their brilliant work on working out how to communicate truth, they still disagree with each other. Um, And the reason philosophers disagree, this is is my thought, is perhaps because God is truth. And this means that our attempts to prove that truth exists come up against the ceiling of our limited human nature. Now, way back in the 13th century... There was this chap, um, Thomas Aquinas, and I think he had this understanding uh, when he said this. He said, God's act of understanding 
is the measure and cause of all other being and all other intellects, and he himself is his being and his understanding, from which it follows that not only is truth in him, but that he himself is the highest and first truth. So this is how I understand it. Aquinas puts God in a very special category all on his own. God is the only being in existence who is identical to his own thoughts and speech. And that's why I think God is truth. If God's word and his existence are identical, then it really helps us to understand who Jesus is. And if we look at the Gospel of John, we can really get to grips with this. So let's have a look at John. And some of these verses will be very familiar to you. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I was very interested to learn that the Hebrew word for faithfulness, emet, is translated with the word for truth in Greek, aletheia. So when John uses the word for truth of Jesus, he's making the point that Jesus is the faithful, reliable, trustworthy fulfilment of God's promises to Israel. If God is truth and Jesus is full of truth, then getting to know Jesus is clearly the way to encounter God. And then in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this really is an astonishing claim. Jesus claiming to embody the character of God and that his physical death and resurrection are the way for humans to come to God. And then finally in John, we we remember the words of Pilate, you know, Pontius Pilate, that famous exchange between Jesus and the Roman authorities. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Reported, or retorted Pilate. So I've often pondered what did Pilate mean when he said, what is truth? What's going on? Now, Jesus is not claiming that his king, kingship is otherworldly. He's saying that his kingship is different to that of the Roman Empire. The politics of Jesus and the kingdom of God are rooted in truth and justice. And in this sense, they're very otherworldly because worldly politics is grounded in anything but. So the politics of the Roman Empire is based in power uh, to bend the truth, to make truth mean whatever raw power can command it to mean. If there is no God, there's no truth. If there is no truth then politics is simply about the powerful imposing their version of truth on the less powerful. 
in effect, we've got relativism. Whatever goes, whoever's the strongest can get to say what is true. So in other words, there's no truth if we dispense with God. Now, Pilate, of course, had long dispensed with truth, and so has Donald Trump, the the outgoing US president. Um, It was claimed that he'd made over 30,000 false or misleading comments during his time in office. Um, Vladimir Putin, we can see today, gets to use power to shape his own truth. If God is truth and justice, then there's always a place to stand against these kind of tactics used by the powerful. We can always protest the injustices of the powerful because God exists. So that's where we've got to. We've learned that God's truth and God's justice are coexistent, and that's important for our politics, for the kingdom of God. And we've learned that Jesus embodies truth in his kingdom. Now, let's go back to that comment I made earlier. The the true socialism of the kingdom of God can only come about if we understand the truth about ourselves. Now, the truth about ourselves is that we are sinners. Sin means that we constantly miss the mark of God's perfection, and it goes back to the very start of the Bible, Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden, um, trying to impose their own truth and deny God. And I think it's no surprise that throughout history, um, deceit and lies have been at the heart of politics, and that remains with us today because we're fallen human creatures were sinful. And the desire to dominate others and manipulate the truth is present in every human life. And it was present for David when he gazed upon Bathsheba. Um, It was present for David when he ordered Uriah killed. And the desire to dominate others will be present in our lives too. So I think that's the truth we've got to acknowledge about ourselves. If we're going to stand for truth and justice it's kind of saying we're not god yeah only god is good and perfect truth and justice reside with god now political leadership that serves justice therefore has to start with the acknowledgement of our own sin our own confession of our need for god and um, stephen d long who i came across um, put it this way In order to have a political society founded upon truth, faith and humility rather than glory and power must be its basis. For faith and humility make possible an essential condition for truth-telling. A political society that would be truly penitential and capable of acknowledging the truth of its sinful past. Anyone incapable of acknowledging fault could not be just. So, Go back to the Old Testament story. God, in his mercy, sends Nathan to call David back to God, to acknowledge his sin, a chance for repentance. In bringing David back to God, Nathan leads David to put truth and justice back at the centre of his rule. And if we're going to put truth and justice back at the centre of our political life together, we're going to need Nathan's not just men, women as well, 
Um, those people who are bold enough to speak the truth to power and hold those in power to account for their lives and their lies and their injustices. So, some examples. Um, I was thinking what a good illustration of this would be. Um, and one that came to mind was someone you might remember, Max Baker Hitch. Name you remember? Um, he used to have lunch with Max um, on the university campus. Uh, very interesting uh, student of philosophy. He was here at Belmont as one of our contact workers some years ago. And he now works at the University of Oxford um, in the Faculty of Philosophy. So I'm tying all the philosophy theme in here, see, so it's quite good. Um, but yeah, Max has had to be a Nathan. Um, he was working for, as an apologist for a Christian organisation, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And in 2016, Max started investigating Ravi Zacharias. And he found that Ravi was lying about his credentials. Um, and then he discovered there were also allegations of sexual abuse that were not being handled transparently by the organisation. So in December 2020, he wrote a letter summing up his concerns and putting together all his evidence. And this letter was leaked and it blew the lid on a series of injustices linked to Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And Max has continued this ministry of speaking truth to power, I think, that Nathan began and you know, we have other examples of the prophets, and modelled in Jesus and perfected. And I just think Max is a great um, example of someone who is living with truth and justice. And we must pray for him, because it's not easy to be at the centre of, of these kind of um, situations that are full of sadness. So that's one example. Uh, another example, you probably all aware about is the Archbishop of Canterbury um, Easter Sunday this year um, speaking out against the government's plans to export asylum seekers arriving illegally in Britain to Rwanda and this is what he said it cannot carry the weight of resurrection justice of life conquering death it cannot carry the weight of the resurrection that was first to the least valued for it privileges the rich and strong and it cannot carry the weight of our national responsibility as a country formed by Christian values, because subcontracting out our responsibilities, even to a country that seeks to do well like Rwanda, is the opposite of the nature of God, who himself took responsibility for our failures. And I think that was very courageous and brave. It was speaking truth and justice to power. And you may know the reaction he got it wasn't great. Um, the government um, denounced what he'd said and essentially told Christians to keep their noses out of politics. Um, and of course, uh, the papers were kind of, some of them supported the government view and criticised Justin Welby. Um, but those with an axe to grind against the government came out in support of the Archbishop. And I found it very interesting that Alistair Campbell, a committed atheist, um, had recently spent time with Justin Welby doing an interview for, I think it was Radio 4, and he said this of the bishop, Archbishop, if you want to get a sense of the character of the Archbishop, I suggest you take 40 minutes of the day to watch the interview. He comes over as thoughtful, humane, wise and humble. 
four qualities rarely associated with a man whose policy on refugees and asylum seekers he was criticising. So, we go back to this point. Truth and justice are inseparable in the true socialism of the kingdom of God. We can expect opposition to our truthful lives and truth-telling, but be encouraged. Everyone on the side of truth will listen to Jesus. And as they listen to Jesus, they are very close to accepting the rule of God in their lives in repentance and faith. And so finally, the application. How do we speak truth and justice to those in power in our lives? Uh, We're not all philosophers or archbishops. Um, So I asked my family at lunchtime today and tried to gather their thoughts together. And first of all, the main way for us is to live truth-filled lives, um, like Jan, the anaesthetist, to live with humility. Nick, you were talking about that this morning. Um, we live with humility because we know the truth about ourselves, that we are sinners, we are not God. We are dependent upon God's mercy and grace. To live with hope because God loves sinners and has welcomed us into his kingdom to enjoy his rule of truth and justice. To live in solidarity with the oppressed, because if we introduce them to Jesus, they will get to know the truth, and the truth will set them free. For some of us, we might need to find creative ways to draw leaders back to the truth and justice. Um, Nathan used a clever story to get under David's guard, And before David knew it, he understood the error of his ways and the need to repent. Now, we may need to be creative in how we challenge people. So just one example from last week. Someone came into my office and said they'd sent an email and they told me what was in the email. And I said, that was naughty. I didn't want to say, you know, oh, you're a terrible person for sending that email. I wanted to sort of say I differ in my opinion about whether you should have sent that email. So I used the phrase that was naughty and it seemed to have the effect that I wanted. It seemed to resonate between us. Um, So be creative. Um, Some of us may need to act as whistleblowers. Anyone involved in safeguarding in an organisation will know telling the truth about what's going on is very important. Um, there are all sorts of examples you could you'd could find if you search the internet of whistleblowers. Um, it's a tough calling because the cost can be quite great to you uh, personally. Um, one example I know of is Michael Woodford, who was at Olympus. He was the CEO of Olympus, the Japanese organisation, and um, he found massive corruption, and he, he exposed it, and his life was threatened by the Japanese Japanese mafia. Um, He almost became an alcoholic because of the stress he was under, Um, but it all came to light. And now he tours the world talking about whistleblowing, speaking truth to power. Um, What else can you do? You can get involved in campaigning, write to your MP, sign a petition, um, or take direct action, dare I say it. Um, I'm not sort of advising you perhaps to glue yourself to a train in protest at climate change, It might be merited, but um, do consider carefully what you do. Um, Many Christians are involved in taking direct action 
because um, the authorities are not listening to um, truth and justice. They're not acting on that. Um, voting in elections, staying informed about the issues around you, that's important. Um, supporting organisations that stand up for truth and justice. I make a contribution regularly to Amnesty International, which I think is important. Um, uphold high standards of truth in your work. So if you're a research scientist, it's important to record and report the data you collect accurately and be honest and transparent about what you're doing. If you're a news reporter, it's really important to um, be accurate about your reporting and to be truthful. And finally, um, my wife Michelle's just been reading a book by Sheryl Sandberg, who has, um, she was working for Google and uh, she's an American business executive. And this book, Lean In, encourages women to take a seat at the table of leadership, um, to be confident carriers of truth and justice into institutional life, whether that's the family, the workplace or the public square. I think um, as a society, we would benefit from women taking a seat at the table of leadership. Because um, I, I just recognise the story today from the Old Testament is about two guys, generally. Um, and I just want to encourage women to lean in to truth and justice. I know you are already leaning in, but I just encourage you. Um, so there's lots of applications. Um, let's, let's just pray.